0: You know you are capable of more, because you have a burning desire to get the absolute most out of your career and life, to starve your fears, to follow your dreams, and to realize your true potential. And we are going to do that together. This is the Own Your Career, Own Your Life podcast. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Own Your Career podcast. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited that you're joining me today for another episode and conversation to help you take ownership of your career and control of your future, that is what it's all about. And when I think about my book, Own Your Career, Own Your Life, I feel like it gives a lot of guidance in how to think about the big picture of your career, where you want to go and how you might want to get there. But when you get into a job, you have the career that you want and you want to be seen as valuable and move up and be promoted and rewarded. I know I don't get into the nitty-gritty of that stuff in my book, but for you and me and us, there's a new book out that I think can be really helpful with that. It's called Impact Players by Liz Weissman, and maybe you've heard of Liz Weissman. She is also the author of the best-selling sensation Multipliers, which came out about 10 years ago. Multipliers is a leadership book. It's all about helping leaders become better managers and leaders and really enabling people around them to do great work. I love that book. in fact, I am a multipliers certified facilitator. I met Liz years ago through the business consulting company I used to work for BTS and I became a multiplier certified facilitator and I've actually traveled all over the world running workshops teaching the concepts from that book. so I'm very familiar with that. and I was excited when Liz released her newest book, which is called Impact Players: How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger and Multiply your Impact. And so if you're not a manager or, Maybe you are, but this you've got it down to figure out how to manage your people. But you want to think about how you manage your own career and move up in a company and be seen as an impact player. This is what this book is all about. It's both for... You, as an individual, think about your own career, as well as for leaders and organizations, think about how can they help their people become impact players. And so, I already mentioned who Liz is. She's a researcher and executive advisor who teaches leadership to executives around the world. She's the author of the New York Times best-selling book "Multipliers: How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter." Also, she wrote "The Multiplier Effect: Tapping the Genius Inside of Our Schools." Wall Street Journal bestseller, Rookie Smarts, Why Learning Beats Knowing in the New Game of Work. And her latest book is Impact Players, How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger, and Multiply Your Impact. She's also the CEO of the Wiseman Group. She speaks at conferences all over the world. She spoke at my first conference, the Talent Development Think Tank, in January 2020 in Santa Rosa, California. And I'm excited to have her back on my podcast today. We are talking about what it takes and means to be an impact player. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Liz Weissman. Enjoy. All right. I am joined now by my friend Liz Weissman, bestselling author of the book Multipliers and the new book Impact Players. Excited to have you back on the show. Liz, welcome. Well, it's good to be here. And Andy, you are a friend. Yeah. It's been nice to, to get to know you over the last few years. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's been great getting to know you. you. And you could have responded to that by saying, no, you're not a friend. I don't know why you introduced me as such, but I'm glad that you went the other way.
1: <laughs> no, no, I do feel, Andy, my friend, I very much feel that way.
0: Well, thank you. Yes, of course, we've gotten to know each other quite well over the last few years, doing some work together. You spoke at my conference in January, 2020, back when we used to have those kinds of things. And of course, I know your, your content quite well and was excited to dig into this new book, Impact Players. and I definitely see the need for it because there's you know, so much talk about how do we get our leaders to become better managers, but what about all the individual contributors, all the people out there who are trying to make their mark and grow in their careers? And I know there's a lot of great advice in here, but I wanted to just start by asking, you know, why did you write this book and, and why now?
1: Well, um, I think, Andy, you can appreciate it because you have been out there teaching people about multipliers, how to be a multiplier leader. And I've been doing that for 10 years.
2: Mm.
1: And along the way, there were various points where I call them warranty calls, where someone's like, I did it. I heard you speak. I read your book. I did everything you said. I tried it. It didn't work. (laughs) <laughs> and so then I'm in this troubleshooting mode of, well, okay, well, first of all, maybe it just doesn't work. Maybe this multiplier right. is a bad idea. Yeah, That's always a possibility. But then like, what about, and, and mm-hmm. so as we are going through like, well, maybe you're not doing it very well. If you're trying new behavior and you're still wobbly, or maybe you're trying new behavior and you're still thinking like a diminisher, maybe people have been diminished so long that even your attempts at good leadership are going unnoticed, mm. or that people have like lost the will to contribute, the will to try. And so it got me looking at not just what is the leader's obligation, but what is the contributor's role in this? And and then there was a moment, and Andy, you of all pre will appreciate that moment you're out teaching and I'm teaching about multipliers. I, I'm pretty sure this was a sales force. And and the guy's like. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I want to be a multiplier leader. That's good. I'm good with that. But you can't multiply zero. Hmm. I'm like, that's. I'm like, hmm. What is he saying? And yeah. I'm thinking, is he saying the people who work for him are zeros? Yeah. And I'm about to burst into my speech about, hey, everyone has intelligence and brings capability, and your job as a leader is to find the intelligence of right. everyone. Bring and it be- out of them. Yeah. I'm about to like, it's almost like a musical like where I'm about to burst into a song or something. And then he's explaining what he means. Like, thank goodness. I listened just Mm. a little bit longer. And he's like, yeah, I'm supposed to bring a certain set of mindsets and behaviors, but what about the people who work on my team? Aren't they supposed to
0: bring, like they have to show up in a certain way. Like meet me halfway on this.
1: Meet me halfway. Meet me halfway and so i got interested in the halfway and what is you know in some ways for every act of great leadership like asking a good question well then there's an act of great contributorship
2: mm-hmm.
1: in this case very simply coming up with an answer going into problem solving mode and so i just started to look <clears throat> at what is the contributor side of this and and i think it also comes from a place of me having studied leadership and some of the best and the worst leaders is really coming to understand that, that people come to work every day, desperately, desperately wanting to contribute
2: Mm -hmm.
1: everything they have. Like, this is the big thing. This is the truth that I've learned and when they can, it's exhilarating. Like work is a buildup experience. It's thrilling. You can't wait for Monday. Um, and when they can't, it's exhausting. It's draining and it leads to burnout. And, you know, we we're dealing with an epidemic of burnout and, and, and it got me really looking at like the drive people come to work with that people crave impact and they want, they want to show up. They want to play big. They want to do work yeah. that matters. And so I wanted to study What does the contributor side of this look like? And what do the people who are having an inordinate impact, really making a difference, what are they doing differently than people who are equally smart and capable and hardworking? Like what's the difference in work practices?
0: Yeah, because obviously there's lots of factors, right? And and the work you've been doing for the last decade has been about leadership. And as you mentioned, I'm a certified facilitator in multipliers and know the content quite well. And I know there's still a huge challenge out there to get leaders to be better at enabling their people and, and become, you know, talent magnets instead of tyrants and all the, you know, all the stuff that, you know, stop being micromanagers and everything else. But I'm sure when you look at this, You say, okay, well, let's control for the fact that, yeah, some people have great managers, some people don't, some people have great cultures and companies, some people don't, but there's still a huge difference between people who show up and make a huge impact in their work, regardless of their situation versus those that might have the best manager in the world who's throwing up his or her hands because, like you said, you can't multiply zero.
1: Yeah, and those were the things we were controlling for. So we're controlling for organization and culture. We're controlling for manager. We're controlling for capability level intelligence hard work we're trying to remove all of those variables and just figure out how is what is different about how people show up and how you know what their mental game is and then what their practices are what do they do differently and how do they think differently about their jobs and it was so fun to do this because it's thin slicing. this is not you know and I know you know this this podcast is for people really in the talent, field and talent development, this was not a study of high performers and low performers. Mm. I'm trying to thin slice the difference between rock solid contributors and impact players. So the rock solid contributor and and the way that managers described them, like, well, you know, they they do their job, they do their job really well, and Mm -hmm. they follow direction and they work on teams that carry their weight, they take ownership. They stay, you know, they're focused.
0: Yeah. This, is, this isn't the, like the trouble people that are always on the performance plan or like you need to fire them, but you can't, these are the people that are, Hey, they're doing their job. And I, and I, I've read your, I've been reading the book and managers like, yeah, they're doing a pretty good job. But I'm frustrated because I always have to keep giving so much direction. They're not really going out of their way to do the extra work.
1: Yeah. And in some ways, you know, they're, they're working in more rote patterns like okay let me do my job let me do what i'm told let me stick to it and it takes an incredible amount of courage actually to not do your job you know it was one of the differences that we found and you know i think it's it's one of the five differences that i tried to to illuminate in the book is that the rock solid contributors they do their job but the impact players do the job that's needed which is different than your job it's not saying like I don't care about my job. I'm going to like abandon post and go do what I want to do. Like I want to do the CEO's job. Like that seems like an interesting job. It's it's this ability to be rangy and to have, like to give yourself some elbow room and say, Mm -hmm. okay, these are my duties. But if there is like a wildfire over there, I'm going to go and try to help. Um, You know, I'm not going to wait for someone to anoint me as the boss or the leader for me to be able to step up and take leadership. So it's right, very right. much an agile way of contributing. Yeah. Like each I've of been... the differences can be traced back to how we interpret ambiguity because the Rock Solid contributors were stellar in ordinary times. Yeah. That was what was so interesting. It's that they fell short in times of ambiguity and uncertainty. Mm. When the problems don't match up nicely with the org chart, where there is no clear boss,
0: yeah,
1: when yeah, the problems it, can't be anticipated,
0: the thing that struck out stuck out to me is I've been reading the book, and and as you mentioned, you got these five differentiators, but th- I think the common theme is this idea that contributors do the job at hand, while impact players do the job to be done, so they don't just wait and say, well, my boss told me to do this, that's all I'm gonna do, I'm gonna stay in my lane. They look around and say, oh, there's a problem over here. The company's strategy is this, I'm gonna go see what I can do to make a big difference here.
2: Yeah,
1: and really to, you know, if you're trying to build an organization of impact players, like that difference between doing your job and doing the job that needs to be done is a function of culture and leadership and mindset. It's knowing like, okay, there's the thing i'm doing and then there's the thing i I really should be doing and and rarely is this captured in job descriptions um you know it can't be commanded and you know it's funny um that makes me think of something i learned studying these multiplier leaders is that people's best thinking cannot be taken on command Mm. like andy like i need you to give me a brilliant idea Yeah. Like, I can't put pressure on you. Like, okay, you yeah. know, this is where you show up and you do your finest work. Like, right, right now, you know, <laughs> it's like, this must be your finest hour. Yeah. People's best work have, has to be given voluntarily. And, and I think it's very similar here is that these impact players are doing their best work because they are of their own volition saying, I'll take the lead on that. You know what? I know this isn't my area of responsibility, but I'll get that done. Like, mm, I know I'm not really held accountable for this obstacle that like dropped out of the sky into our path, but you know what, I'm going to get this thing done rather than escalating it up. And I'm going to do it by pulling in resources and help. Like, you know, when, when the, you know, workload is heavy, like instead of looking to their leaders to lighten it, these are people who kind of lighten the load for everyone else. And, And it's really work that's done because we're choosing to work this way. Nobody's forcing us to.
0: Right. Which Um, is a
1: function of culture. The culture has to invite people
0: to work this way. Yeah. Or or sometimes you need to change your priorities and look at what is important for the company and the culture. I like that you shared your own story coming up in Oracle, right? And, And the things you wanted to do versus recognizing what would be valuable to the company and then choosing that path And how that worked out well for you in your career. I wonder if you could share some of that.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, in some ways, this was my finest moment. And one of my worst moments all wrapped up into one. And, you know, I joined Oracle early in my career, right out of graduate school. I wanted to teach leadership. Like I wanted to do the work that Andy, you and I, and so many people listening knew. And I was gunning for that. And actually, I tried to get a job working for Zanger Miller and I'm like, I want to teach management. And I got a hold of the president. And I'm like, give me a job. And he's like, why don't you get some management experience? Right. You know? Exactly. <laughs> like teach management. I'm like, wow, how narrow minded.
2: <laughs> you know, yeah. like,
1: he doesn't get me. He doesn't understand this is what I want to do. And so I took my consolation job at Oracle and I'm a year in and I got my eyes open. Like my eyes are open for an opportunity to get involved in some management training. The company's young, rapidly growing. And there's this job that opens up in the um, company's internal training group. And I'm like, oh, internal training group. And they did almost entirely technical training, but the company's growing. I'm like, you know, it's their charge is gonna expand to include management training and I wanna do that. So I'm interviewing for this job. And I interview with the manager, the director, and I'm now interviewing with the VP, Ask me a bunch of questions I answer. And then it's kind of my turn to ask him something, say something. And I kind of lay out my case for why the company needs management training. We had a bunch of young people being thrown into mm-hmm. management jobs, no training no coaching if they're wreaking havoc on others a lot of diminishing going on and i see it and and i like explain it he's you know bob the vice president he sees it too he agrees with it and i'm like oracle needs a management boot camp and i would love to build this like i'd love to help develop that and he said to me he's like you know liz that's great like we think you're great we're excited to have you come join our team but you're it's kind of like patting me on the head. Yeah. He said, Your boss has a different problem. She's got to figure out how to get 2000 new college grads up to speed on Oracle technology this year. And he said, What would be great is if you could help her do that. Yeah. And, you know, they were running these boot camps and I knew they needed technical instructors, but I had come out of business school. I wanted to teach management training, like, I wanted to teach leadership and Bob wants me to teach programming to a bunch of
2: nerds. Right.
1: And these, and these are people who are coming out of MIT and Caltech and Harvard, Stanford, all these top schools with CS degrees, with people with like PhDs and- right. um,
0: You would assume they know it better than you already anyway.
1: Yeah, I'm like, uh, I don't want to do this. I'm not qualified to do this. Like, let's do something I'm... And I didn't want to do it. It's not the job I wanted at all. But I'm, I could tell this was the job that was needed. And, and he was giving me this incredible gift. Um, what he was essentially saying, he said it politely, but what he was saying is like, Liz, hey, make yourself useful. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, well, he's telling me what's the most important thing, not just to my boss, but to him and to the company right now. Well, if that's really what's important, I should go work on what's important and see if I can contribute there. And so I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And that's a whole nother story, how I figured out how to teach programming to a bunch of programmers.
0: Um, Right. But as it goes on, right. You keep running into these, well, I could go follow my passion or what I want to do, or I could look at what's valuable to the company.
1: I thought my whole, my
0: whole career was a string of this where they then say, okay, we need someone to manage
1: this group and build Oracle university and like really build a true corporate university. I'm like, and they asked me to do that. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I'm having fun with my little ruse here, teaching programming to a bunch of hotshot programmers. Yeah, And I'm like, no, find someone else who wants that job. And they're like, no, we want you to do it. And I very much remember that little speech I got from him, which is why you need to do this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think it was, I think it was a couple of things. One is I now understood the technology, which was the lifeblood of the business. And I had demonstrated that I was willing to subordinate my own like sense of like self and passion, what I cared about to what was important. And I don't mean that I was subordinate. Like, I don't think anyone in my entire career would describe me as subordinate, yeah. but they're like, no, no, no. We want you to do this. And so I did that job. And then, you know, then they keep asking me to do things sort of out of range. And I keep saying, Yes. And suddenly I've got bigger jobs. And, you know, I had a management job bigger than anything I could have ever imagined. Certainly anything more than I had hoped for. Because, but it was because I kept working where on the agenda. Yeah. And then right. it was interesting. I had a colleague from HR, you know, asked me one day, hey, Liz, can we have lunch? I, I need your help. I'm like, sure, you can feed me. And um, we got to have lunch. And she describes this program. That she says, I need to get executive buy-in to this program. Like, essentially, like, I want to get this on their agenda. And she's like, can you help me with this? Like, you're a master of this. I'm like, no, I, I don't think I can help you. And she's like, what do you mean you can't help me? Like, you do this better than anyone. I'm like, no, I've never actually taken anything that was important to me and sort of made it important to the executives. Like what I do is I find out what's important to them, and then I make that happen. And in the process, yeah, I've probably earned a lot of influence, and I've earned the right to very much influence the agenda, if not help set or set the agenda. But that's an outcome. That's not the entry point.
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I think it created an orientation for me. But it was because I had you know this VP Bob who's like, hey, Liz, make yourself useful.
0: It reminds me. You know, working with a lot of people in learning and development, talent development, training world, which you came from, so many times people have initiatives they want to implement. We need to create this new management training program, whatever it may be, and are looking to get that sponsored by executives or funded by an executive team. And don't take the time to truly understand what's really important to the executives, the so-called sponsors, and build something that fits what they're trying to achieve so that they're a lot more excited about it.
1: Well, and, and I think it's so much easier working on this agenda, even when you're in um, areas you're a little out of your wheelhouse in, because what I've noticed is that when you are working on the agenda, I've never seen an executive not have time for a meeting when you're working on the right agenda. I've mm. never seen an executive say, I don't have money for that. Like I've noticed every executive finds money for the things that are important to, to share to he, you know, it's like, yeah. th- there's money there, there's momentum, there's energy. People give you their time. Meetings don't get postponed. Um, you know, the executives are tightly wound around it, which means you can keep making it better and better as opposed to, Hey, oh, yeah, that's good enough. Oh, it's right. fine. Right. Yeah. I don't have any opinions. You just do it. And it's, if there's more pressure there, but it's also a lot more fun. So yeah, it's like getting part of this, like
2: slipstream
0: of energy. I want to make sure we make an important delineation here because you talked in, in sharing your story, you talk about doing what's on the agenda and what's important to the business and the leaders that you work for Mm -hmm. going back to what you talked about earlier between contributors and impact players. You weren't just doing whatever you were told right? This is the job to be done and this is all I'm going to do. It was really looking around understanding, okay, what is truly important to my leaders, to the business and going out and finding the things that need to be done, not just whatever they tasked you with doing, right?
1: Yeah. Well, and um, let me kind of show what that nuance looks like today. So when, you know, clients um, hire me to come in and teach or speak or do whatever, they often will, it's amazing. Sometimes I get clients who are awful micromanagers about me coming in and helping their people not be micromanagers. And, right. and so you know, and you can imagine I'm sort of have this allergic reaction to micromanaging. Yeah. Based that's on the work right. that I've done. And and so when like a client is trying to micromanage me, I don't just go, oh yeah, let me go and do for them this thing that they've told me to do for them. Okay, right. we want you to do this and this, don't do that, don't do this, do this. I'm like, that's not going to get them what they really want. And so I back up and I'm like, tell me what you're trying to accomplish. And and sometimes they're like, well, we want you to do this. No, that's not what you're trying to accomplish. Like, what's really important here? Why are you convening people? Like, what's the gap? And I get them to tell me about the, the business need. And then I'm like, now here's the way that I can do that best. And so it's not this like subordinate, subservient, like you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. It's Mm -hmm. let me understand what's important to the organization and what's really fundamentally important to you. What are the true outcomes we're looking for? And then I'm going to use my expertise and skills and talents and whatever, like to do that. And that I think is what I saw in these impact players is not this, let me roll over and play dead and just do whatever. Let me like work for the man and like, It's not this, it's let me understand what's critical, and then let me contribute that in the very best way I can.
0: I think there's an important lesson there also for people who work in talent development, learning and development, HR, that you get these requests all the time from business leaders. Hey, we need a training program on negotiations or this technical training program. And people often just jump and say, okay, that they want this program, I'm going to go create training rather than, you know, the prudent thing is to take more of a consultative approach and ask questions and go talk to different people and find out what the real need is, and then create a solution for that.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, the way of the impact player in that case might be, you know what, if they're asking for a Java training class, we're going to go in to do a Java training class, and we're going to do such a great job that they are so thrilled with that, that then the next time they ask for something, we're like, okay, let me, let me step back and let me So it's like, you're earning the right, you know, I I think impact players is really all about why some people have a lot of influence inside organizations.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: And it, you know, influence, um, you know, the world today tells us that influence is about having a big voice, but in my experience, influence starts with having a mindset of service. Where can I be useful? How can I contribute? you know, and we earn that
0: voice in the world. Yeah. I think it starts with trust as well. Right. When, when people have been delivering great results and helping you achieve your goals and you start to trust them, then you start to ask them for help and listen to them. And this reminds me of a term you used in the book that I really liked called upward empathy. And I wonder if you could share a little bit more about that.
1: I I can. And, you know, we, again, this comes after 10 years of really well more way more than 10 years of helping managers like have empathy for the challenges of their team and the diminishing mm-hmm. effect they might be having on the team what i realized is that the these impact players these top contributors have a lot of empathy not just for their colleagues but for the the people above them and it's going it's stepping back to say not like man my boss is an idiot or why is she asking me to do this it's i wonder what her challenges are right now. I wonder what makes her job hard. I wonder how I might make their job hard. I wonder what pressure, so rather than, man, she's putting a lot of pressure on me. It's, I wonder who's putting pressure on her. What pressure is she feeling right now? And not just like, hey, I'm the most important person in your world. It's like, you know what? You probably have a lot of planes on your radar. You've got a lot of things going on. Let me understand that. Um, one of my favorite examples of this uh, was Evan um, hung at uh, Target, and he works for um, Eileen, and you know they work in risk management, and and she says he learns me, like. What's important to you? What are you, what are you, you know, cared about? Not like what keeps you up at night, just like what's your world like? Yeah. What, what are the things that you're talking about with your boss? What is he concerned about? What are they? And, and he's just empathizing with the challenges that they face. And what it's doing is it putting, when we do this, it puts us in other people's shoes. We see things from their perspective and it allows us to deliver value that they will see. Because you know yeah. something isn't we can't deliver value unless we know what is valued,
0: right? Yeah, of course. And some people probably get it more intrinsically than others, and that lends to another question I wanted to ask you. And I don't think I saw this covered in the book, but do you think impact players, by and large, are more born or made? Right? It is like a lot of people just kind of get it and do it, or a lot of people go through experiences and learn that way. And I, I assume. It can be learned, right? to to make that move from contributor to impact player.
1: Well, you know, I think it is a lot like athletics. You know, the impact player metaphor comes from sports. Mm. But I think it is a lot like sports, where some of us have certain natural advantages and whether they're genetics or our early life experiences because our parents, you know put us on sports teams and you know, went out and you know played with us. Like these are skills that are by and large, all learnable. Some people will come with a heavy advantage in that, whether it's, I mean, I don't know that it's born, but it's developed early in life or mm-hmm. early in career and others will come with, um, a significant disadvantage and it's something that will be harder. won. one of the parts of the research that I'm was the most pleased with was the, the part that we did after we could have called it quits. Um, You know, once I kind of built this model of, you know, here are the mindsets and practices that differentiate impact players from, from others, I decided I would go and try to find out which one of those are, which of these are most learnable and which are very difficult to learn. Which was hard research because one, there's very little out there in the psychology literature about what mindsets are extensible and, and learnable. Um, and two, I'm a natural optimist. So, you know, it's same. one of my diminishing tendencies is I'm always like, yeah, we can do this.
0: And That's I grew up. Also, in- yeah. You and I share the same accidental diminisher tendencies there. I'm always an optimist
1: always. And, and I also come out of learning and development. So my knee jerk reaction is of course, people can learn how to do this, right? right? We need funding to build the courses. Yeah. And the-
0: let me teach them.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's my natural orientation, but I decided I would take a little bit more of a skeptical orientation about which of these are hard. And um, I've got my list here somewhere. It's in the book. It's one of my favorite. Um, it's towards the end of the book, but um, yeah, here we go. So I'll just, look, I, I made three columns based on what we found in the research. So there's not much out there in the, the academic literature or from psychology. So I went out to my colleagues in the MG 100, the Marshall Goldsmith 100. So these yeah. are a hundred top coaches around the world. And I've I went many out of to them
0: on this podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so I went out to these folks and said, okay, first of all, have you had experience coaching people in any of these things? If so, then we asked them, what was their experience? How easy was it for people to learn how to do this? How effective the coaching was? And so we identified some that are quite easy to coach and learn you know, somewhere in the middle and then things that are quite difficult. And, you know, the, the obvious and smart strategy here is if you want to build a team of impact players, if you want to build a workforce of impact players, well, hire for these less coachable, learnable kinds of mindsets and behavior patterns, and then spend your coaching and training dollar on the ones over on the right side. And I can give you, um, the list of some of the things over on the left side that are yeah, let's harder. hear some examples. Internal locus of control, like that doesn't surprise me. You know, some people, I think everyone on the on the uh, listening would know, kind of what that looks like. Um, you know, the sense that I can control outcomes in my life. Mm. Like the sense of I am an actor in my life as opposed to a victim.
0: In yes. My life. Yeah. Something, you know, I'm a big fan of, right? What I wrote about in my own book on your career, on your life. Like it's about taking ownership of every situation. A lot of things are outside of our control, but these impact players focus on, okay, what can I control? Let me go take some action there.
1: Exactly. And everyone here listening has probably had an experience with a friend who's stuck in a victim mentality and you're off trying to help them. Like how easy is it to get someone out of a victim mentality? Yeah. It's very, very tough. And those are probably I don't think they're like, we're born that way. I think our early life experiences yes. teach us that
0: we're Heavily not a- influenced by our parents and our family and our friends and, and peers and people around us early on in life.
1: Yeah. Or our early career experiences. One of the pieces of research that I'm determined to do is to look at what are the long-term consequences of people's first boss Mm. because I think we there's a lot of imprinting that is happening there around like no no Andy I don't want you to do that do your job I know that's a problem you do your job like Mm -hmm. so this is one that's a little harder um a sense of informality meaning I don't have to be in charge to take charge
2: Mm.
1: like you know if we grow up in a culture that's got a lot of power distance um Mm. A lot of hierarchy. That that's a little harder to say. Oh, don't worry about titles. Don't worry about this. Just like it's okay. Take charge. People "Mm."
0: so that one's a little harder. Um, Waiting for for permission versus taking initiative, mm -hmm. and it's accepted and less accepted in different organizations and different cultures. I'm sure, but there are still a lot of people out there who are like, Oh yeah, I see this problem over here, but I'm not going to do anything until I get permission, and I don't have a meeting with my boss until you know three weeks from now, so I'll wait till then.
1: Yeah, and and that is you know very influenced by kind of our our lens that we operate we we move through life with which is are we looking at problems and uncertainty and ambiguity through you know an opportunity lens or are we looking at that through a threat lens
2: mm-hmm. so
1: you know you see that hey this is a bunch of people collaborating but no one's in charge like this meeting needs a leader like do we see this lack of leadership as a threat or do we see it as an opportunity to serve and provide value, Mm -hmm. you know? And do we see it as, oh, this is not only a chance for me to lead, it's a chance for me to be the boss and take charge and control others and kind of make a land grab, you know, because I'm threatened if I'm not the boss. So like, this is a lens that, um, you know, it can be changed but you wanna hire people who are gonna see these, these situations of uncertainty and ambiguity through this lens of an opportunity to serve Rather than a threat to my well being, right. um, and there was one in the behavioral side that I just thought was so interesting that kind of shows up as not very learnable or coachable is being bringing fun to the workplace.
2: Hmm.
1: Honestly, that kind of depressed me. I was like, oh, I would think that that could be taught, right? But you know, there are there are some people who take things pretty seriously, and but there's a lightheartedness around these impact players around. Right. They're sort of easy to work with. They're easy, I wouldn't say they're easygoing. They're low maintenance. And they just bring a sense of levity and fun to work that. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that's on there because, you know, I, I think back to my time working for different companies when I was an employee and I always thought I was never particularly very good at any of the jobs that I did, but I always brought fun to the workplace <laughs> wherever I went. And, you know, people seem to appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And kind of my life story is... I want to work around people who are fun. And it's what, you know, when we surveyed 170 managers, like I can tell you out of 170 managers, nearly 170 of them want to work with people who are fun.
0: Um, That's surprising. You would think uh, most of them would just say like, yeah, fun is nice, but we need to get things done. This is about business and save your fun for, for happy hour or something.
1: No, no. um, I'm looking for where that shows up in yeah. It's in the list of, so we asked managers, 170 of them. This was actually my real favorite part of the research toward the end of the, each interview, we asked them what, um, what do people do that really bugs you that makes it difficult for you to do your job as a leader right. that actually makes you resent, not just them, but your job. And then we asked people like, what do people on your team or around you do that just make your job a delight that you love it when people do it. And, um, of the top 15, so there were many, many, but of the top 15, number eight is bring good energy, have fun, and make others laugh.
0: Yeah, it's in the top 10 things managers most appreciate. That's cool. That's surprising. So I want to ask you, I want to give people some you know, actionable advice here. And I know the book, there's a couple different approaches, right? There's one of how do you help people become impact players, right? With the learnable skills, and then how do organizations help their contributors make that move to becoming impact players. Maybe we start with the advice for individuals, people listening, and you know, hopefully they're going to read the book as well. It's like, okay, how do I make this move? Maybe I have just been a contributor. How do I become more of an impact player so that I can move up, be more valued and feel like I'm contributing more? Yeah.
1: So where should we start? Should we start with what would we do? What, what can you do as an individual? What can you do as a manager of a team? What can you yeah, do- let,
0: Let's start with the individual and then maybe we can go to the manager and the organization.
1: I think the simplest thing that you, I mean, there's a number of things. The book is probably over-rotated on practical tips. So I, at at Mm. the end of each chapter, there's a playbook of like, just try this thing. But I think if I had to pick one that really puts people on the path of being an impact player, it is to, to find the win and then get in on the win. And what I mean by win is what's important now. Mm. And one of my favorite examples of this, we did an early webinar on this, and one of the attendees was a worship leader at a big church. And he was good at his job. He worked hard. He kept his leaders informed. When we talked about this idea of like, figure out the agenda, like what's important right now? What's important to the people you work for? He's like, wow, I'm not working on the agenda. Mm -hmm. And the way I know that is because I send a weekly email to the senior pastor telling him what I'm working on and he never answers it. It like crickets when he sends these. And I'm like, okay, why don't you try this? So when you send that weekly email, I want you to do two things. Number one, describe briefly what you understand to be the most important work of the organization. Like this is what I know to be most important to you, to the organization and two, how you're working on that. That's it. He does those two things. Here's what's important now. And here's what I'm doing on what's important now. And he said, the response was dramatic. Like Mm -hmm. my emails got responses, encouragement, like participation, reinforcement, like recognition. And think about how good it feels when the people who work for you say, you know what? I understand what you're trying to do here. I understand what we as a team are trying to do. And here's how I'm contributing to that. Mm. So that's one thing is just figure out what the win is, what's important now, and then go to work on that and then talk it up. Like tell people how you are working on what's most important. It's not about standing on a soapbox and bragging about it. It's just letting people know I got my eyes focused on what's important.
2: Hmm.
1: you, You do that, it's essentially it's it's doing the job that needs to be done and letting people know that you're doing the job that needs to be done. Yeah. Everything else gets
0: easier. Yeah. Building your brand and reputation around that along the way. But yeah, focusing on, I remember that took that from the book as well, the the win, what's important right now, what's important now. So understanding, again, going back to the upward empathy and what is important for the strategy and for your leaders and focusing on that versus just like, oh, I have this task over here and I'm going to keep working on that, even though it's not really that important. Yeah.
1: And very few organizations do like the stated cascaded goals and MBOs and all of that quarterly objectives. Rarely does that line up with what's important right now. Like there's kind of an overlap, but you've got to figure out like, what do people care about? What are they talking about? What are people putting energy behind? What's getting funded? What are themes that come up over and over? That's what tells you where there's energy and heat and interest and then go to work on that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's go to the manager. Now you are a leader, you're a manager. You have some contributors on your team. And of course, first and foremost, we've read multipliers. We're trying to, we're doing our best to be a multiplier leader, but how do we help our people grow from contributor to impact player?
1: Yeah. Well, let me, let me use two ideas for multipliers as sort of a bridge to what I've learned about how do you, how do you build a high impact team? How do you help people contribute at their fullest? The first is like, understand how your accidental diminished tendencies can prevent people from, from working this way. Like if if one of the practices is like when unforeseen obstacles drop in, most contributors escalate up and the impact players hold ownership and they get that thing across the finish line. Well, if you've got some rescuer tendencies,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like what you're saying is, yeah, it's okay for you to just pass them over to me. And so know how your accidental diminisher tendencies might be preventing this. And then, you know, to provide the kind of environment where people can do this and have to do this so you know i can sum up what i've learned about multipliers in two two and a half words and and that is safety and stretch that the multiplier leaders create an environment of safety you know psychological safety as amy edmonton has um taught us about but also intellectual safety safety to take risks make mistakes um think differently speak truth to power But then they don't just leave it at that. They create this environment of stretch where people are held accountable. People, um, you know, are are asked to do hard things, given jobs above their capability level. You know, people are expected to grow. People are expected to deliver. And and so I would think about what are all the things that I need to give people permission to do? Like you have permission to do the job that's needed rather than just stay in your job boundaries. You can't not do your job. That's the stretch part of it. Like, but you know what, if you need to put some of those things on hold to go deal something urgent, like let me know and just go do that. You know what, you don't need to wait for me to give you permission to lead. You know, if you find a leadership vacuum, take charge. But don't make it a land grab, like Mm -hmm. offer your leadership and then pass the baton to somebody else. You know, if and so it's like going through each of these things that we that high impact contributors do and and permitting them, giving people explicit
0: permission to work this way. Yeah, that's so important, right? Because I'm thinking as a multiplier, and then you know, one of the biggest, most common diminishing tendencies is being a micromanager, right? As I've gone out and run multipliers programs, I've run leadership workshops for probably thousands of managers at this point, you you survey people. What's the number one thing that frustrates you about managers you work for? Micromanagers is the number one thing that comes up. Yeah, people keep doing it, right? And if people are micromanaging, how can you ever expect your, your contributor to turn into an impact player and look for the job that needs to be done? They're just waiting for you to tell them what to do all the time.
1: Right. And, and one of the things I loved about this research around impact players is if a manager can build a team of impact players, It is your ticket out of micromanagement Mm. because when you have people who do the job that needs to be done rather than job, take the lead rather than wait for role clarification, maintain ownership rather than pass it up to you, you know, people who ask and adjust their work when the targets are changing rather than sticking to what they know, people who make work light for the team rather than add to the burden. Like you don't have to manage anymore. People are self-managing. So it's your ticket out of micromanagement and sort of out of management and it's your ticket to leadership. Mm. And, you know, I think we all know this, that no one really wants to be managed anymore. People want to be led and coached. Right. Right. And I'm not sure I can find a lot of people who want to manage.
0: Right. They don't want to be doing it, but they end up doing it out of fear or whatever the, the reason may be and not realizing they have this golden ticket if they just invest the time in enabling people.
1: Yeah, and no one really wants to be a micromanager. I mean, there's a, maybe a few people, they might be like sociopaths or something, but that most of us don't want to do it and we resent when we're pulled into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people I run into wanna be good leaders. right? And this you know, is your ticket to doing, but you've gotta give people permission
0: yeah, you've got to make that decision. And as you said, in multipliers, you know, very few managers show up to work thinking, I'm going to be a diminisher, I'm going to be a tyrant today. And yet it happens for various reasons. Maybe that's the way they came up, their first manager, as you mentioned before, or they feel like they have to micromanage. And it takes a, a shift to become that multiplier to really give people freedom. And as you said, go as far as to explicitly give them directions and say, I want you to go out and take more initiative and look for the job that needs to be done. And just come to me when you need some help or guidance, but I'm not trying to micromanage everything you do. Yeah.
1: I think there's a couple other things that managers can do to really give the people on their team a fighting chance of working this way. Uh, One is to let people know what the agenda is. Here's what's important right now. And also here's what's important to me. One of the interesting things in the research, we ask 170 people, what is it that you, people do that you absolutely love? And what is it that people who work on your team around you do that really frustrates you? And then I would say, they would, they would say, oh, nothing frustrates me. I'm like, it's okay. And then they start spewing this. And then they go, wow, you know, I've never told anyone on my team that. Mm. Like, I've never told someone that long-winded emails really bother me. Yeah like that what I really wish people would do would sum up an email chain that they're forwarding to me and ask yeah, me to weigh in on. three bullet points. <laughs> give me three bullet points so I don't have to read that whole thing. And, and so many of them came out of the interview saying, I think I'm going to share this with the people who I work with.
2: Mm-hmm. Like You're it's
1: back. kind of, here's how to be successful here. So letting people know, here's what's important to me. The other thing is around feedback is, I think probably everyone in this community has sort of a love-hate relationship with performance reviews and and feedback. And we think a lot about it. I think one of the simplest solves to this is the impact player orientation to feedback is feedback. I'm not seeking feedback about me and I don't interpret feedback as about me. I, I see feedback as information about my work. Like what can I do to recalibrate my work and make it better. And so I think the thing we can do as managers in this is get out of this business of giving people feedback. In some ways, like you might go extreme on this and say, I'm not going to give anyone any personal or professional feedback. All I'm going to do is give them information about how to make their work better.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's so much easier to give and it's so much easier to receive. Like, oh, here's, here's what would make that presentation better. You know, yeah. here's what would make
0: that report easier for other people to read. Or here's what would make my job easier as a manager, as you mentioned, like the email chain. Mm-hmm. You know, I would appreciate it if you, you know, if you did this, I would it would be easier for me and it would probably save us all time or whatever it may be.
1: Yeah, I think we we've gotten ourselves in this situation where it feels like we as managers are making judgments about people. And I think if we can get out of that business and give people information to make their work better. I I think it would allow everyone to do work that was more impactful.
0: Absolutely. Liz, we talked about what contributors can do to step up and become impact players. We talked about how managers can enable their people to become impact players. Some of the ways that we can help enable them and also stop doing things to prevent them or get in the way. Uh, What about from an organizational perspective? You know, we have a lot of people listening to this podcast to work in talent development, learning and development, who are creating training programs and looking for ways to enable their people to become more effective, more productive, more engaged, all of those things. What can organizations do to foster more of a culture or create more impact players?
1: Well, I think there are things that we can culturally give permission to like, you know what it's, it's like, Hey, if you see a problem, go fix the problem. Like, don't wait. Um, so there are certain things that we can do to permit this kind of agile, rangy way of contributing. Uh, two, the other thing I think we do is take a look at our, you know, most corporations have statements of values. And one of the things I realized, in so, so part of how I did this research, I'm going to go back to the research, is the way I even figured out what were the impact players doing and creating the behavior of surveys, I, I looked at oh, several dozen companies' value statements and said, okay, here's what companies say they value, ownership, initiative, customer-driven behavior. And, and I assess the impact players against that. And there's not always a really strong map to that because most of the corporate value statements describe average behaviors. Like this is a kind of behavior that won't get you kicked out of the tribe. But one of the things that I think can be done and I'm already seeing organizations do and I'm working with one later this week saying our corporate values describe average case, but it doesn't describe the superlatives. And what we want to do is describe like, what does this look like when people are contributing at the highest level? Like take initiative. You know, um, what does that look like when it's done in high impact? Take ownership. Like most people take ownership. What that means is to maintain ownership, even when things get tough, but that doesn't mean go it alone, exhaust yourself, throw yourself across the finish line and sacrifice yourself to get it done. What that means is you're going to keep ownership and you're going to coordinate the response. Like, okay, I need our CEO to come in and help with this. I'm going to need the head of HR to help us figure out this. It's not that we go solo. It's that we never hand the pen back to someone else and say, your problem. I'll go back to my little job. And so it's defining what that looks like, what each of those values looks like at its highest level of impact to the company. I think there's some really interesting things that could be done there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a lot of it is about defining the culture and that enables people to be able to act in that way. And, and some of it comes down to like expectations, right? It can even go down to the onboarding boot camp training. This is the type of company we have. You don't just come in and do the job that you're supposed to do, but we love when people take initiative and look for things and solve real problems.
1: I think you're exactly right on that, Andy. And it's, it's where I was thinking, it's like that is the place where you can get people to say, hey, welcome to Intuit. This is what we believe here. This is what we value. It. We, we hired you because we think you have this chance to make an impact. We know you want to. And here's how you do it here. And it's there where we set those expectations, the stretch, but it's also there where we give people permission. Like, you know, if you see a leaderless situation, don't let it flail, step in and offer to lead, but you don't have to lead forever. You can pass the baton to somebody else. Huh? Yeah. So, and I think we, there's things that we can do in our hiring work to look for people who have the, the more ingrained, that have the makings of the impact player that are a little bit harder to coach some of the more innate qualities and
0: traits. Well, this is fantastic. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, Liz, in addition to the book, I know you've been working on a new blog and dispelling some myths in the career world and some of these that I'm interested in dispelling and and talking about with people as well. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that and maybe give an example.
2: Yeah,
1: you know, um, I, I think there's a lot of career advice being dished out right now that might be in the junk food. Category that it sounds good; it makes for a great commencement speech, but it actually doesn't work that way. And so, I'm starting this um, column, and it, it it it's likely to show up on the HBR Ascend platform, but not necessarily. It might um, end up somewhere else, but we're we're going to start it there, and it's going to be a myth busting career advice. And you know, I'm going to sort of try to be a guide for. Ferreting out misguided career advice, and um, we've got this wonderful like way that we're going to fact check it, not just our own research, the research out there um, in the org, org psychology literature, and then building this pool of executives who are going to weigh in on like, should I ask for a raise? Should I follow my passion? Should I hmm. socialize with my boss? Like, you know, should I take jobs I'm not qualified for? And we're either going to say, yep, good advice, bad advice, or you know what? Let's reframe this a little bit.
0: Yeah. I uh, can't wait for that. That's yeah. There's, there's so much advice out there that some of it you're like, ah, I don't know. I mean, the whole, like follow your passion. We know that gets a lot of people I, possibly in trouble, but I think causes a lot of anxiety and stress. And people are like, I don't know what my passion is, or it doesn't make me any money. And there's this other opportunity over here. And you even had a good story in the book about a guy who put his own passion aside and looked at what was the organization really excited about the cancer research and then, you know, followed that instead.
1: You know, and I just ran into Mike Mon, uh, who the who story is about. This is Mike who works at Qualtrics. And I just saw him a couple of weeks ago and he's, he, you know, he's doing this amazing work now with the Utah Jazz and cancer research and um, creating um, more inclusive communities for the LGBTQ plus community. And he's like, yeah, I could have like done my own thing, but now by doing these things that matter to the organization I work for, I am like, he's he's a difference maker, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we don't want people who are just stuck being position holders, but then, you know, there's position holders, then there's like sort of these like passionate folks, and then there are the difference makers and the difference makers go beyond their position, but they don't just follow their passion. They find a way to work passionately about what's most important to the organization. And again, if it's, I've learned anything, studying leaders and contributors is that people want to contribute and they want to do work that matters and they want to be difference makers, not position holders.
0: Yep, absolutely. Well, Liz, you are a difference maker and the new book (laughs) is called Impact Players. I'm holding it up now. I've been reading it. It's great if you are looking to become more of an impact player or you work in an organization, you want to create more impact players. Make sure you check that out. I assume the book is available. I know I got it on Amazon, but it's available probably anywhere books are sold. Anything else you would add? Where should people go to, to get more information?
1: There's a website for the book, impactplayersbook.com. And for the true like competency model nerds, like my kindred spirits, on the website, I put like just the, the core model. So, you know, you can skip the book if you want to just like, I want to know the mindsets and practices of impact players. I put that on the website, and it'll show impact players, sort of ordinary contributors, and then under contributors—people who are smart, talented, hardworking, but inexplicably aren't making the kind of contribution you would expect.
2: Mm-hmm. Not like
1: low performer dingalings, like really capable people who are off the mark. Yeah, and yeah. and that's all. Uh, I put that all up on the website for like those of us sort of L and D nerds.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, impactplayersbook.com. We'll put links in the show notes. And of course, make sure you go out and get the book. Liz, this has been awesome as always. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your research and wisdom and experience and stories with us. I always love it. I know our audience does as well. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you, my friend. All right, that will do it for my conversation with Liz Weissman. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you got some tips, some things to think about in terms of how do you become an impact player in the organization that you work for, or maybe it's your own organization. How can you help the people who work for you become more of an impact player? You can learn more, of course, by checking out her book, Impact Players. How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger, and Multiply Your Impact. And, of course, if you want more inspiration, I would love for you to check out my book, Own Your Career, Own Your Life, Stop Drifting, and Take Control of Your Future. I poured everything into that book, and I know there's tons of value there. Over 225 five-star reviews on Amazon, so if you haven't read it yet, check it out. And if you—maybe you, you're not a reader, but you just want to support me, I'd love for you to buy it and leave a review on Amazon as well as leave a review for this podcast and share it with a friend. And of course, as I mentioned in the past, I have free resources on my website, including the top five ways to own your career, the five steps to owning your career, the top five most common career mistakes, the three questions to ask anytime you face a big challenge, and my morning routine. It's all at ownyourcareerownyourlife.com bonus. Thank you again for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.